welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by writer, director, Andrew Bajowski. Andy is a indie cinema legend. He made Funny Ha Ha, which is now regarded as the first Mumblecore movie. He's had a long career since then. He's always making great stuff, especially Computer Chess. If you guys haven't seen Computer Chess, holy shit. It's all shot on VHS, like a mockumentary about a weekend at a Computer Chess tournament in a hotel. And as we get into on the pod... It's such a strange and unique and brilliant movie. You can't really pitch it or describe it or compare it to anything else. And that's pretty much what he was intending to do. It's just spectacular. Support the Girls was also excellent. I recommend that. Just dig into his career. And this was a great chat. We got into it about John Cassavetes, Disney, acting... And his new movie, There There, all shot during COVID. This is me and Andrew Bajowski. How's things with you? Oh, it's all right. How's everything there? Pretty good. Kind of cold and miserable. But ah. that's Where kind are of you? a London. Okay. But that's kind of a London aesthetic. That we right. Have over here. That's 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 how it's meant to be. Yeah, it's kind of it feels like what kind of the UK Morrissey sings about. Yeah. Just kind of is that's that's the UK that's in my heart here. Yeah, same. Are you in Austin? I am, yeah. This is, uh, I guess, Willie Nelson country. <laughs> Although, I don't know. It's kind of, it's balmy today. You know, we, we the, Austin can't decide if it has winter or not. So it'll go a few days of winter existing, and then it will change its mind. And we're kind of back in the winter doesn't exist portion of the winter. Did you grow up in Texas? No, I'm from Massachusetts, from Boston. What kind of teenager were you? What were you into? Uh, movies. I was I was a movie obsessive, and um, yeah, I don't know. I moved around a bit as a as a teenager. I went to three different high schools, so I was uh, you know I was a disaffected, gloomy. Um, I probably, I, I, it's a good thing I hadn't gone too deep into the uh, Smith catalog at that point, but it it, it would have worked for me for sure. And what kind of films were you watching? Was this the, I'm guessing this was the video store era. Yeah. Um, but I think I was already, you know, for sure there were a lot of, certainly much time spent at the video store. But I think at, at some at some point in, in teenage years, I also got kind of fixated on this idea that, that movies were, were meant to be seen on the big screen. And it was a better mm-hmm. experience that way. And so, and I still feel that way, which is a, 
you know, it's a strange way to think in 2022 because the world has has headed so much the other direction. Um, but, I, you know, I was trying to make it out to as many movies as I could as often as I could. And that, you know, was a big was a big part of my life, basically, until uh, until all movie theaters got locked down a couple of years ago. And that was quite an adjustment. Yeah, that was the longest I've ever been without going to the cinema. It was yep, really a strange experience. Mm-hmm. What were the movies that really blew your mind? Uh, I mean, I, I always struggle with this question because it's kind of, you know, like all of them. I mean, it, it depends when you're looking at, too. I mean, when I was a kid, um, certainly I remember, you know, going to going to the the big the big sequels that are going to going to all you know empire strikes back and star trek 2 and rocky 3 and like all of those um hitting me pretty hard um and i think i think had a lot to do with me starting to fixate on this idea that this was this was the thing for me um but you know then then you get to be a, a teenager and um David Lynch has always been huge for me and then uh, then get to college and then Cassavetes is huge for me and you know just uh finding things along the way um and uh but it all gets mixed in and I think as much as as much as people tend to look toward like the you know the big influences um it's it's also kind of everything I mean I think you're always especially once you get uh, this idea in your head that you're going to try to make something once, once you're trying to get some of that, not just to flow into you, but also to flow out of you. I feel like you're taking ideas and inspiration from, from everywhere all the time, not just the kind of usual suspects. I was going through all my criterion DVDs in lockdown and I'm embarrassed to say that I couldn't get through husbands again. Oh, I don't, that was so, it's rough. it was so painful that, I mean, I love all his catalog and I know that's like the heavy hit of that, all the, all, all my really intense filmmaker friends say that's like his purest, hardest work. Well, I have the same feeling that you do. And I, I don't know, you you know, I, Criterion, God bless them, asked me to write the liner notes for that, but it was a tough assignment because, um, because I have the same feeling about it as you do is it's like, it's, you know, I, I love everything he did, but to me, it's also of all the ones to kind of revisit and sit with, it's the most excruciating for sure. I do think it's kind of, it may be the purest expression in a way of, of, um, of, of a certain kind of thing that he's doing, but it's also, uh, it's also rough going for sure. And it, I mean, it's almost kind of a, a horror movie, like the, the screws just keep tightening and uh, it's a rough one. I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't go to Cassavetes purely for the roughness and purely for the the um, unrelenting <laughs> uh, integrity of, of of that particular vision. So it's not you know it's 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 not one I'm going to come back to over and over again just because it's too tough. I'm glad I had the opportunity and I'm glad Criterion mm-hmm. has to do that. Um, but no, I have a I have a better time with some of the others. Yeah, I mean the way my brain works for films like that or albums like that you know i, I kind of love the toughest movie in the in the catalog like i love mike lee's naked yeah and things like that but i was like wow this is just excruciating i even even the performances seem really heightened and strange so much outbursts of shouting mm-hmm. and screaming and, and yeah it was such an odd experience to me i'll go again when my brain isn't in the, the covid lockdown zone Sure. Maybe that just amplified everything. 
Uh, yeah, it seems like a tough, a tough lockdown movie, but it's, it's, it's un, unrelentingly painful for sure. And clearly intended to be so. Yeah. Did you go to film school? Uh, as an undergrad. Um, so I studied at, at Harvard, which had a great, I mean, I think still has a great program, uh, which has a, a real kind of documentary backbone. So that's, that's, that's the Kool-Aid I drank. Um, I, I think everything I've done since has been with some of that, documentary eye in mind um or even you know you you mentioned mike lee and i i burned into my brain as a, a quote that he had at some point where he said all all cinema should aspire to the condition of documentary and you know that's kind of that's always stuck with me in a way um so i think i think in documentary and in that training i had as an undergrad it's so much about just trying to learn to see what's in front of your eyes which can you know paradoxically it can be the hardest thing when you're making mm-hmm. a film especially you're making a feature film and you know, you're, you're spending money and it's a big, it's, it's a, you know, it's a a lot of pieces in place. You get so there's so much work to do just holding the vision in your head that it can be difficult to hold the vision in your head and also just see what's right there, which may or may not correspond with the vision. You know, that's always the trick I think is trying to, trying to adjust for what you've got. Um, So yeah, that was, I, I took a lot from that program for sure. And how did you navigate to make your first film? Well, funny ha ha. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of stumbled into it. I got I got out of school. I got my I got my undergrad degree and um, spent a couple years, um, you know, not not really knowing what to do with my young life. I, I knew I wanted to make movies, but I didn't know what that meant. And I had no sense. I still have no sense of, um, you know, how to how to climb a ladder or, or build a career. That's never, that's never been intuitive to me. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had some jobs. I, I actually, the first job I had out of college was I stumbled into a part-time teaching a, a film studies class at a high school, which was great because my head was full of all this stuff that had just been drilled into me. So then mm-hmm. I tried to drill it into some high school students. Um, and I was writing a lot, you know, I, I wrote a few screenplays, which weren't very good. Um, and then eventually um, managed to write this one with this idea that I would try to go uh, shoot it with Kate Dullenmeyer, who plays the lead. And I wrote, I wrote it for her. She was not a professional actor. Um, she was my roommate at the time I started writing. So it was just somebody who was, who was in my life, who was a remarkably charismatic human. And I just had this notion that um, of, of what she might be able to, put across on screen. And so I, I wrote kind of building around that, that imagination. Um, and it turned out to be a much better script than I'd written before. You know, it felt like, okay, maybe this is, if I'm going to, if I'm serious about wanting to make movies, um, this might be the word, word the one, the, the thing worth kind of banking it all on. That was all I knew. All I knew was that I've got to give everything I've got to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was, 24. I wasn't that long out of school. And certainly a lot of the folks involved in that movie were folks I had gone to school with. Um, and we did everything cheaply and scrappily. We got a camera loaned to us. I edited on a, a 16 millimeter flatbed table, which was loaned to me. Um, you know, most everybody was working for free. Most of the locations we got for free. And, you know, we, we managed to we put together a little bit of money um, to, to film stock was our biggest expense, but we just went and did it. Um, and I was very lucky. 
that uh, it had a strange lifespan because it hadn't been made, you know, I, I didn't have a kind of careerist uh, approach to it. So by the time I finished the movie, however many, you know, year and a half or however long that took, um, I remember getting a finished 16 millimeter print back from the lab and, uh, you know, clutching it to my chest and thinking, this is, this is it. I've, you know, I've accomplished something, but, mm -hmm. but I have no idea how to get this scene. <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't quite thought that far ahead. Um, so, you know, it took, it was about six months then before anybody would show it. And then it was a strange kind of incredibly lucky process really of people gradually discovering that film and just little, little breaks, little pieces of good luck. So we finished it in 2002, but it wasn't, uh, officially released until 2005. Um, which was a, a, a funny way to start a quote-unquote career. So what was your roadmap once the film was finished? Just shopping it to film festivals? Yeah, blindly, you know. I mean, th this was 2002. I, there was a, I went to a website called filmfestivals.com, which may, may not <laughs> still exist. I don't know. But, you know, it just had a list of uh, a lot of them. And I blindly applied to a bunch and got rejected from almost all of them. Um the only one, and I'll always love these guys uh, for doing this. The the only one that I got into on you know truly blind submission was a festival in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, called Sidewalk Moving, which is a great festival, and you know has a lot of a lot of indie filmmakers have had great uh, experiences there. So that was that was actually the first one I went to in person. But around the same time, I also had some other screenings come about as a result of um, you know just outreach, personal connections. I'd I'd gotten a VHS tape in the hands of a, a local critic in Boston named Jerry Perry, who actually, you know, 10 years later acted for me in computer chess. Um, but Jerry, Jerry gave us our first screening in Boston, you know, as part of just a local, a series of local filmmakers. Um, so that was our premiere and, you know, gradually got a few festivals, but then at that point, it started to gain some very slow momentum, you know, a little bit of, little bit of word of mouth, a little bit of, the right people at the right time giving us a boost um and onward we went but it's fun you know i did a q a with it uh, two weeks ago we we did some 20th anniversary screenings of that movie in new york and um the moderator of the q a was a, a critic who i've talked to many times and has you know who knows my work probably better than anybody um and he was saying it's kind of like this you know it's 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 a road show that never ends it hadn't i hadn't thought of it that way but in a way it's like i'm I haven't stopped promoting that movie 20 years later. We're still, I'm still, still out there doing Q's and A's with it. Everyone I know who was involved in the scene hates the term mumblecore. Mm -hmm. But was there a moment when, did it feel like a movement or a moment at the time it was happening? Or were you all just making your own kind of small, intimate, personal movies? Yeah, that's how I felt. I mean, I think that's how most of us felt. There was, you know, certainly there were um, friendly people and uh and so I, I like that part of it. i mean there was there was a bit of a community in as much as you know obviously um and and you know hannah takes the stairs was a, certainly a, a moment for that where i and mark duplass and todd rohan and of course greta acted for for joe so there was some you know the, the the community was real but it wasn't cohesive and it wasn't um there was no there was no shared uh manifesto you know yeah. there was barely even a shared aesthetic i don't think you know i think i think that i think what people saw as the commonalities between those movies were always the least interesting part of them um 
And, you know, it was, it was what made them all individual and unique that, that made them good in the case of the ones that were good. I remember talking to Joe Swanberg and he said something really funny that was there a Spanish remake of Hannah yes. Success? That's insane. It's completely insane. I saw the trailer. I haven't seen it yet, but actually, um, I think just now in the States, at least, um, I don't know if you saw Uncle Kent 2, Todd yes. Rohal's Uncle Kent 2. Yes, which is great. Um, they've got a Blu-ray coming out of that. And one of the extra features on the Blu-ray is uh, is the entire Spanish remake of Hannah. So I'm I'm dying to see it. I, I'm, I'm hoping my Blu-ray is in the mail here. Oh, that's amazing. Is that is that Factory 25? Yep. Okay, yeah. God bless Matt Grady. He does great work. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He's a Absolutely. real savior. In fact, and I think, you know, he... He already has a Blu-ray out of Funny Haha, but I think we're going to put out a new one this year with some, you know, a slightly, a slightly nicer looking master and uh, some more goodies. Ty West said something really funny of the era that he cites this era of you, him, Duplass, Swanberg, almost like the last indie movement mm. around the time of the mini DV camera sure. era. And after that, everything just got so disjointed and the internet ruined everything. But looking back, it's kind of true. There hasn't been, I, I can't really pinpoint to an, an, another movement in the American indie film world since. There's always great stuff happening, but it's just so sure. fragmented. And yeah, everything's just so much more difficult. Even when you look at the career steps directors were having going from even just in terms of budget for way like Wes Anderson or Noah Baumbach went from working up the ladder yeah. to now that those movements just aren't happening in the indie film landscape. Well, I mean, you know, the axes are constantly shifting and, you know, uh, it's, it's hard. I, I don't really try to keep up. I, I, I should be better about that, but um, I mean, for better or worse, you know, my head is still in, cinema and cinema kind of barely exists now we're now we're into the content era um and i haven't quite learned my way around that i hate saying that word yeah me too and we all do but uh (laughs) but you know it's it's the reality we're living in um and you know as you say i think the what's i guess what's helpful to keep in mind is like there is no matter how many things change and no matter how many things go away and this has always been true i think by the way i don't know that you could look at any period in movie history and and not say that you know it wasn't or or say that it wasn't tumultuous and say that it was that there weren't great changes happening because there's always the economics are always shifting the technology is always shifting the culture is always shifting um so i can i can say god everything changed in the last 20 years but i think everything changed in the 20 years before that and the 20 years before that and the 20 years before that yeah i think just looking back that was the last time where i could even like going to see like Larry Clark's kids in a mainstream cinema yeah, was sure. wild. Or yeah. I saw Hannah takes the stairs at the Institute of Contemporary Arts. I'd see Swanberg's movies every year at the film festivals and stuff. Even to the point where I remember he would just send in a really lo-fi video intro from his laptop. Right. And just say, hey, I can't afford to be there <laughs> and just right, like, sure. uh, enjoy the movie. And I remember people were, like scoffing and like, obviously, it was, it was still very, you turn up in your suit, right. you, you do your Q&A, but he was just sending in all these lo-fi videos. And I was like, he's getting his name out there. He's getting his face out there and just really hustling. 
which was really inspiring. He's a he's a super hustler and always he's always been great at um I've always admired his ability to kind of see the windows up of opportunity and, and get through because they are so fleeting now, right? Like the ways to get anything done in indie movies now from year to year, it's like there's a few people who pull off some it's it's like a heist, you know, it's like yes to, to get a movie made. And and uh, so he's always really good at just like spotting those windows, going and doing something while it's still fresh and new and while maybe you can even like make some money off of it. And then and then on to the next thing, whereas I'm always about five years behind trying to figure out what, you know, which window already closed. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think many people are as. Um, oh, I, I don't know he, he's just his own company, isn't he? He's just his own always pushing forward. I remember I text him during lockdown. I was like, hey, what have you been up to? And he just sent me a link and I thought it was going to be like of a short film he made or something. Yeah. And he opened his own fucking video store. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God damn. He said, what have, what he's then text me like, what have you been up to? And I was like, I rewatched Seinfeld. I don't <laughs> know. That's about all, all I've yeah. got. But mm-hmm. he's his own studio and system. It's really inspiring. For sure. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mubi. Mubi is a great streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. And did you know Mubi has a magazine? Mubi just sent me the new issue of Notebook. It's called Notebook. And firstly, I got to say, the paper smells so good. Do you guys know what I'm talking about when you get like a new book? Or a magazine that has that nice recycled paper and it just smells really good. Like all things Mubi does, it's super nicely designed. It's got a great aesthetic. And the contents are great too. There was a feature on Park Chan-wook, which I really liked. And a really great feature on Michelangelo Antonioni. And here's the deal. The magazine comes out twice a year. So you can subscribe now to receive the next two issues of Notebook for £30 at movie.com forward slash magazine. And all the magazine subscribers get a free gift. I love free stuff. So go check it out for yourself. Go to movie.com forward slash magazine and keep printed matter and especially film magazines alive. Go do it. talk about computer chess Mm -hmm. which has always been one of my favorite movies since i first saw it so unique i was wondering where did the spark for that idea come from i know you had just an eight page treatment going into the movie with it yeah it's hard to reconstruct i I, you know i know the, the the first spark of it for sure was just um seeing some some images from those old portapack cameras 
um, and falling in love with them and, and just thinking, wow, this doesn't, this doesn't look or feel like, like anything else. It's the old analog video from, um, you know, that, that came before the, uh, the kind of camcorder era that I grew up in. Um, because of the particular technology, because of the, and I, I'm, I'm not a guy to speak to the technology, but it, it, um, the, you know, the, the tubes in the camera rather than the chips in the camera, it has this weird organic quality to it. Um, it certainly doesn't feel like film, but it also doesn't feel like any of the video that mm -hmm. came after. And in a strange way, because it's so specific and so particular to a certain era, it's like, it it really immediately evokes that era too. Like you don't, you can't see an image like that and not be just transported right back to this kind of seventies zone and a particular feel. So, you know, it was kind of a, and maybe I think there was also a, maybe like a kind of snarky, I had just made three movies on 16 millimeter. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, you were saying about Ty West and like the, this, you know, this kind of DV revolution, I sort of sat out the DV revolution um, but would get asked about it all the time. People would say, well, when are you going to shoot on video? When are you going to shoot on video? So in a way, this was kind of my, um, obnoxious response. Like I'll show you, <laughs> I'll show you a video. I'll show you real video. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I, but, you know, thinking of form and, and I, I loved working on 16 so much. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful format. Uh, and I still love it, but you know, I'm, I guess I'm a big believer that, well, I don't know if, you know, whether or not the medium is the message, at least the medium has a massive impact on the message. Um, and you can't, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not medium agnostic. I'm not platform agnostic. I think all this stuff matters mm -hmm. um, in terms of how you see and feel a movie. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to, if I were to tell a story with these kind of images, what would that story be? Um, and just kind of randomly, I had, you know, I'd, I'd seen something written somewhere about, early computer chess tournaments. It was not something I knew anything about. I'm, you know, I, I, I like chess, but I'm not any good at it. I haven't studied it. Um, I, I know fuck all about computer programming. Um, but whatever reason I, you know, I, that's, I was intrigued by this notion and it kind of stuck to that idea of these images. Um, and so it was just a crazy back of the mind fantasy. Um, a friend of mine at one point, we were a filmmaker friend, Jeff Nichols. I was having breakfast with Jeff and he, uh, you know, we were talking about like impossible projects, movies that we could never get made. Um, and I mentioned this idea to him and he essentially dared me to, he said, well, write a treatment and, you know, have the have treatment on my desk next week or whatever. So I, I wrote a treatment on a dare and then, um, and then it sat in a shelf for a while, but there came a time shortly after my, uh, my first child was born where I thought, you know, if I don't, if I don't make a movie now, I'll never make one again. Um, so just kind of jumped off a cliff and it's crazy that that movie exists. It's crazy that we pulled it off nothing about it made sense or was sane. The fact that it turned out, you know, pretty well. And, you know, for, for, for a lot of people, I think it's their, their favorite of my movies is, mm -hmm. is pretty unlikely <laughs> given, given, uh, uh, you know, the odds would certainly seem to be against that happening at all. And just to geek out, I was wondering for the cameras, do yeah. these record onto a tape? They did. They, you know, so if I, if we had shot this in 1970 something, it would have, um, but because, so the cameras, you know, to find a camera in working order 
um, in this century, you, you can do it and you can, you know, you can go on eBay or you can find collectors or whatever. And we had, I think we had three cameras because we, we couldn't be sure that one wouldn't go down at any moment. Um, but to find a tape deck that's in working order is much harder. They were much less reliable. Um, so we made the decision and, you know, this was, we're also like digging up, you know, ancient engineers. We're going, we, we found a guy who lives in the suburbs, not too far from Austin, who had been an engineer at Sony in the seventies. And he was hugely helpful. Um, and we're, you know, we were getting a lot of advice on this dead technology. Um, and ultimately what we figured out how to do was to take that analog image, run it through some converters. And so we, we never did record to tape is the short answer. We did, you know, when it went to a hard drive through multiple converters, it's a, it's a, you know, relatively lightweight camera. It was designed to be a lightweight camera, but somewhat paradoxically, it ended up being pretty unwieldy for us because we had, we had the little light camera, but then tied to like 20 converters and boxes. And so we had to bring a cart around everywhere with it, but it, it worked. I've always found transferring video to a MacBook or to an editing yeah. software, they they just don't gel as well. Exactly. Yeah. Huge pain in the ass. I mean, for every format. So I, we had a guy who was kind of our, uh, you know, post-production guru on that, a guy named Nick Smith here in town. And, um, you know, poor Nick just suffered with me through um, every, every iteration because these things were not meant to work together. Uh, so every time, you know, whether it's, whether we're mastering a, QuickTime file or a DVD or a Blu-ray or whatever, like every format, there were new problems mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and new, new things we had to, to figure out. And this was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the tech guy. So these were Nick's headaches more than mine, but I would sit there with him and watch him figure it out. Um, and uh, it was a challenge for sure. It was not, and even to this day, like it's, you know, the movie is shot at the native video frame rate of 29.97. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that's an interlace. So what that's also not good for is DCP. DCP doesn't, doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always at pains now when people screen the movie, I'm, I'm still out there explaining to them, like, actually, you know, even though DCP is the standard format, it's not, it's the kind of the worst way to watch this. Um, you're, you're better off just running a DVD because it will, that, that will retain the frame rate. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yeah. So um, what did you watch for reference for computer chess? Because I, I can't associate with any other movies. Is, is, there's, there's a weird Lynchian quality toward the end, but... That was the idea, man. I mean, that was like, that was that was our highest aspiration was let's go make something that doesn't, you know, we, we don't know the precedent. We don't know where to go from there. We're kind of trying to make a, a cul-de-sac movie. And uh, yeah. And... Support the girls. How amazing is Regina Hall? That's such a spectacular performance. Very amazing indeed. Again, that film's like a, a film from a different era that it almost feels like Trees Lounge or something. Sure. What were you watching when preparing that? You know, I, I, pro- I, don't, I don't tend to, and I probably should, but I don't tend to do a lot of, let me sit down and revisit this and this and this. It, it all kind of lives in my head one way or another. So as you say, I mean, you know, of course, I'm sure I'm taking influence from all kinds of uh, 90s indies and, and, you know, all over the place. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't one thing I went and studied. It was a tricky, it was a tricky thing to 
devised because it had so little it was there was so much choreography in that movie um and and you know regina has to be so she has to she has to tap into deep emotion constantly but she also has to be very precise because it's uh almost every scene is she's trying to do one thing and then gets interrupted by you know three other problems uh yeah. so there was there was almost nothing in that movie that i that i thought of as a kind of conventional scene you know for me for me a scene is a thing where maybe two or three or four people sit together or stand together or, you know they're in a place together and over the course of you know some minutes some things are exchanged and so those are great fun to shoot you know when you can kind of spread out and maybe that's where you can explore things with the actors and uh you know whether it's whether you're ad-libbing or not where you can just try to kind of feel something out and open it up whereas in support the girls we couldn't really approach it that way because almost everything was about timing almost everything was you start to say this you start to feel this and then this 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 and then we go over here and yeah but it's a huge credit to the to the whole cast that they could hold all that in their heads and make it work and you co-wrote the script for disney's lady and the tramp yeah how did you land that gig oh luck it's always luck um there was a, a producer uh on that uh picture a guy named Brigham Taylor who's a, an old uh old Disney guy you know he spent a lot of his career within Disney and now he's outside of it but works with him as an independent producer um and god bless him he's you know he's got kind of personally he's got indie taste so he'll he'll see a lot of indie stuff he's the same guy who brought Alex Ross Perry into their fold to write the Christopher Robin movie um so I ended up meeting with him. We were chatting about what was happening within Disney, what he was interested in. Lady and the Tramp came up and I got excited because I think of all the of all the Disney movies, it's probably the one that is most intuitive to me. And as much as it's not, it's not a fairy tale. You know, it is this kind of, uh, you know, maybe ironically for a movie about dogs, but it's it's kind of the most human of their movies that it's yeah. it's, just, it's just a relationship movie. So I got excited. You know, we still had to go into Disney and tell them what we wanted to do with it. And we got lucky also that they were, it was right when they were about to launch Disney Plus and it was kind of exactly what they wanted in their pipeline. Uh, so it's the first time I've had a few Hollywood gigs over the years, but it's it's the only one I've had where it was clearly a priority for the studio and things move very differently when when the studio is actually motivated and you're not just kind of their like farm team. And how was it working with those guys? Were there many notes? Did they get your vision? Or well, you know, it wasn't about my vision. I think that was I've um, I've learned to have different brains for this. Uh, so when I sit down and you know when I when I make my own movie, uh, for better or worse, there's kind of I'm I'm stuck with my vision. You know, there's no there's no other north star to point to than. Mm-hmm whatever's coming, whatever's bubbling up within me um, or whatever I'm looking toward, but it's all, I'm, I, I have to follow my own heart because there's nothing else to follow. Uh, whereas in a professional situation, if I'm, if I'm out in Hollywood and Lord knows if I'm doing lady and the tramp, like I don't, I don't kid myself that anybody is paying for Andrew Bajelski's lady and the tramp, mm-hmm. you know, it's we're doing Disney's lady and the tramp and I'm, doing my best to to contribute to that um you know of course of course things are gonna end up you know there'll be jokes that i think are funny and there'll be uh some of my personality is going to end up in there but also it's the nature of that process that 
you know, a lot of my personality <laughs> gets weeded out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there were, I, I was the, I was the first writer on that version, but I think, you know, there's, there's the one credited writer and there's a bunch of other uncredited writers. So it, it turns into a Disney product ultimately, which is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Alex Ross Perry said he had a really good time on working with him on Chris and Robin. And he's, he kind of said he realized very quickly, they're quite aware if you're looking for a payday, if you're cynical or jaded about Disney and, you know, the Disney empire, they sense it straight away and it's going to be a no go. They know the brand. Yeah. They're a lot smarter and more tuned in and self-aware than he thought, but then he really enjoyed the experience. He's well, he's a real Winnie the Pooh fan. Yeah. So I think it was real goals for him. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I had a great experience as well. I mean, you know, you kind of, you, you know what they're there, you're there to do and you do your best, but everybody was, it was a, it was a collaborative thing. Everybody was very nice. Everybody was very respectful. I never felt, I, I, I was never ill-treated. Um, I had fun. I, I made some money. It was all, it was good all around. And I got to show it to my kids, you know, that was great. That's cute. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. Um, there, there. Mm-hmm. You shot this over COVID? We did, although, you know, it, it took a while. So um, it's a it's a tricky thing to talk about because on the one hand, you know, it, of course, COVID had uh, a lot to do with inspiring um, this production. But on the other hand, it's not it's not exactly a, a COVID thing. You know, we kind of we made the choice to do this. I guess that's what mm-hmm. I'm at, at pains to uh, to point out is like it's not like. Yeah. It's not like we were, were trying to make a conventional movie and then COVID came along and then we were forced to make something weird. It's, you know, mm-hmm. there was a, a very, a very conscious decision and commitment to make something weird that to me, you know, is kind of less about COVID than just a, a, a grand cinema experiment. We're, we're, we're doing something that you could have done 20, 50, 100 years ago, one way or another. Um, and it's kind of always been, for me, it's like, it's always been there in 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 how cinema works. This weird fact of um, you know the, the the lie and the truth of editing that every time you cut from one person to another, um, there's a there's a there's a fakery there that that we all you have to accept. That's what that's what that's what movies are is like kind of that that dream of going from one space to another mm-hmm. uh, without um, feeling the feeling the crack between them. And here we made the crack very evident. Like we, it's like we took a regular movie and like a piece of taffy and just pulled it apart so that the actors are always separated yeah. and the spaces are always separated. Um, and, you know, to, so to me then again, kind of like computer chess where you have this idea of format or how you're going to do something, how you're going to approach something technically. And from there you go, okay, well that, if I'm doing that, and what is the story that I need to tell that way? And this was this was the story I landed on. I love the performances. Le- Lenny James, he was so mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. So charismatic. I've, I've mainly seen him in British movies where he's a gangster or he was a cop in, in the line of duty. But yep. what an incredible guy. Well, I hope we can get uh, I hope we can get the movie more more exposure over there because yeah, Lenny's Lenny's amazing. I know I know he's I, I he's not as well known in the states as he should be and I hope that'll change, but he's he's on the Walking Dead show here, so he's been doing that right. forever. And most people in the states if they know him know him from that. Um where he does an American accent, you know. So a lot of a lot of Americans have never have never heard uh 
the real Lenny. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, just the coolest, sweetest guy and like a total acting Terminator, you know, I couldn't, I was kind of stunned because he's this movie. I've never, it's, I've never done a movie that was harder on the actors because they are all, they were all shot alone. Um, or I shouldn't say alone, but you know, like with, with minimal crew and they would have a, a reader working with them, but not the actual performer in the scene with them. Wow. So Lenny, Lenny never That's met even more a testament to the. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Lenny, Lenny never met. Well, who knows if he, maybe he's met her somewhere else, but he, he didn't, he was not on set with Lily Taylor. He was not on set with Molly Gordon. They shot. Oh, that bossing was incredible. Just yeah. those two going at it was yeah. just wild. Just uh, hitting it back and forth. I can't believe that. Every, wow, every, that's even more spectacular when you realize they're not sitting opposite each other in the bar. No, they're and the bars are the chemistry the and the interplay is so incredible. It's it's different. The the spaces are different everywhere. So everybody is at least a thousand miles away from each other. <laughs> and um and those and those you know, if you it's fascinating to me how people watch the movie. Um, because I think some people kind of clock this early on and other people get through the whole movie and they know that it they know that it's strange, but they don't know why. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're looking at those bars, they don't they're not the same bar. Um, if you're looking at the bedroom in the first scene, she's got white walls behind her and he's got green walls behind him. But the mind is he kind of insists on making it into one space. Um, and no, it's never is. Nobody's anywhere near each other in this movie. Wow. Uh, but yeah, Lenny, Lenny. So so Lenny's shooting alone. He's doing 30 pages of material. It's not easy material. Um, and we're doing it very quickly. He's got no downtime either, uh, but it is still long days nonetheless because we're doing it over and over and over again, drilling it. And um, and but he was shooting Walking Dead, and I, and you know we scheduled this on his days off. And I kind of gingerly asked, I was like, Lenny, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you can master thirty pages of material that you're doing alone in these grueling days, and, mm. and just kind of bang it out on your days off from your other grueling job? And uh, it's like no no sweat for that guy. He's, he's so good and brought so much to the role. Um, and you know, I think, I, I think he had a great influence on how the movie feels. Cause he, he really, uh, he really brought a lot of depth to that character. Yeah. The chemistry between him and Molly was amazing. Mm-hmm. Even though they're not yep. working side by side. And who is Annie Laganja? Laganga. Yeah. She's a, uh, she well she lives here in austin so she's somebody who i've known here for a while um her her background is mostly in uh or at least in her performance background she's done a lot of live storytelling stuff um right so but she hasn't done a lot of conventional acting or film acting she's got a very small role in computer chess she's one of the encounter group people in that um but it was just kind of a crazy back of the mind idea i had i couldn't i couldn't really get past it as as i was working on this script and writing this character i i was thinking i i bet annie could do this and do it really well and it's the kind of that it's that same hunch you know that i had with kate dallenmeyer and funny Mm -hmm. haha where you go okay this person isn't really an actor in the you know traditional sense but if they can if they can put across what i think they can on screen this will be great. And I was, I was so lucky to, uh, to get her to do this. And again, like I'm, you know, I'm telling, like what I was, what I was asking these people to do was seemed like a challenge for someone like Lenny who lives and breathes acting. 
And then to, you know, ask Annie to do the same thing, who who was not accustomed to the situation. It was like quite, quite intense, um, but she was amazing. That parent and teacher meeting yeah. just got slowly weirder and darker mm-hmm. and, and the lines get blurred. Where yeah. did that idea come from? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I knew this story had to be a story about, about trust and about faith. Um, and so, you know, I, I was thinking about all the kind of relationships I wanted to, that I, that I wanted to use as the prism to, to put these ideas through. Uh, so, you know, you, I mean, you have the, the kind of the, the new lovers who, who are learning to trust each other and you have um, the, the, the AA sponsor, and then you have a lawyer and his client, you have all these things. And then the, um, the parent teacher thing, just, you know, I'm sure part of it is that, I am a parent and I have been on these meetings. I've never been on one like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a fascinatingly weird relationship. You know, this, this idea that like, that you both, you're, you're kind of the two people in the world who spend the most time with this, the most precious thing in the world, which is, mm-hmm. which is a child and, and developing this person. And yet, you know, there is so little, you have so little sense of the other. Um, as, as I speak to you now, my kids are in school and um, they're, they're with their teachers. You know, my, my daughter is with her third grade teacher who she's, you know, has, has a, a big impact on her, I think, but I'm not in the classroom. I don't really know what's happening there. And you can, you get these brief windows where you get to sit down with that person and kind of feel them out. It's always a, a bit of a, a strange experience. So I think I just, I think my imagination just took off into kind of the, the most intense version of that. Yeah. What an incredible scene. Yeah. It kind of well, it kind of fe- felt like a Neil Boot scene or something that when it was yeah. ramping up. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, I've, it's not, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like darkness for darkness sake. And so this script was a little scary to me mm-hmm. because I've never, I'm sure it's the darkest thing I've written. Um, and you know, I mean, you know, I'm sure some of that comes from, uh, writing it in early pandemic times. And I'm sure some of it comes from being middle-aged. Um, but, uh, that was something I had to grapple with too, was like, can I, can I do this? Can I steer this thing into a, a darker place than I'm accustomed to or comfortable with? Um, but you know, for me, ultimately as, as as dark and as difficult as the movie is, I think it's also because it's about faith, you know, I, I guess my feeling is like faith isn't faith until it's tested, you know? And so, so in a way it's kind of, it's the movie's all about that test, but it also, there has to be, there has to be hope in it or else I don't, I don't have a way in. Yeah, no, that was totally there. I just really like those gray areas and those undefined characters that aren't clearly, good or evil even when she's saying like look i'm gonna wrap it up you've got your next yeah um parent coming in i'm not out to destroy your life but how are we gonna work through this this is you know a fucked up situation for all involved Mm -hmm. it's so great yeah well and that's you know that's part of why i was excited to cast annie because i felt like she could that was i guess something that i sensed in her i don't know if it's because she's you know California or what it is, but there's something about it. Like, I think Annie can be very comfortable with darkness and, and, you know, with toughness. Um, and yet there is always this kind of underlying 
caring in it, or that's what I sense yes. from her. So, yeah, definitely. That's what was so great about yeah. the performance. Yeah. And finally, what do you want to do next? Have you got oh, more man. projects on the go? I've got something I've written that I'd love to do and I hope to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's tough out there, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. We'll see if I can pull it off. Cool. That's a good note to end on. Yeah. Great. It's been so nice talking to you. I've been such a fan of your movies for so long. This has been really fun for me. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. And yeah, I'll drop you an email about trying to bag your catalog for the streamer. Please. I would love it. Great. Take care, buddy. You too. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That was me and Andrew Bajowski once again sending out those big boy recommendations for Computer Chess, Support the Girls, just dig into his career. It's really rich. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Joshua Eustace for my beautiful music, aka Telephone Tel Aviv. And we'll speak soon. <laughs>